The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 25th, 2014 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Are you down with OPP? What does OPP stand for? Today, it stands for Other People's Podcasts. This whole week, in fact, it's a whole week of Other People's Podcasts tied to the 10th anniversary of the coinage of the word podcast. Slate is a special issue out today. I give a week talking to my favorite podcasters. That's the P in OPP. But what did the P in the original song OPP spell out? It was never named, but it was a five-letter word. It rhymed with meanest or cleanest. They were, you know, it was, they never got too explicit because these guys, they weren't indecent by nature. They weren't explicit by nature. They were merely naughty by nature. Funny naughty by nature fact. Their 1995 album, Poverty's Paradise, won the first ever rap Grammy. Now, I don't know that much about hip-hop. But when I saw that it beat Old Dirty Bastards Return to the 36 Chambers, I thought maybe ODB was better. I am down with ODB. But when I also saw that this not this wasn't even the good Naughty by Nature album, when it beat Tupac's Me Against the World, I said, wait a minute, isn't that like a seminal important album? Yes, The Source, the magazine, in 1998, did a list of the first 20 years of hip-hop. Number one album ever, that Tupac Shakur album. But Tupac did not win the Grammy that year. That year, the Grammy was other people's property. You know, I'm thinking that looking at the Grammys as an authority on what is the best rap album is a little like, say, looking to Dick Cheney as an expert on how much torture is too much torture. And in the spiel today, I will do that. I will analyze an astounding interview that the former VP did with Meet the Press. But first, other people's podcasts to start. Mark Marin, WTF. Mark Maron's podcast, WTF, What the Fuck. If you don't know, and really you don't know, there is a three-word phrase for that, and it ends in the fuck. Anyway, it is an in-depth conversation with usually a comic, sometimes a musician, sometimes an author, and frequently... The conversation that Mark has with the guest will be the best conversation you've ever heard with that guest. And what is remarkable is that the following constituencies will agree with that assessment. Huge fans of the interview subject will say so. People for whom the interview subject was an unknown quantity before they heard the WTF interview will say so. And the interview subject himself will frequently say so. And now... An episode of WTF has been named by Slate as the best episode of any podcast ever. Mark Marin is here with me. Hello, Mark. How are you, man? That's a, that's a, a hell of a, a thing that I guess it's an award or a uh, what do you call that? It, they, they've named it. I've been dubbed. I've been coronated. It's a designation, but it really is an implied coronation. You are correct. I like being designated. Well, well, well thank you. I want to thank them for that's a very nice thing. Obviously, you're comfortable in front of audiences, and you've hosted shows on Comedy Central. Maybe some of those were kind of introducing clips. You hosted Morning Sedition, which was a bona fide talk show on Air America. But this is different. And so my question to you is, how good of an interviewer do you think you were when WTF started? 
in the past when I'd done interviews like on uh, on Comedy Central, we there was a couple of shows we did that were specials where they featured a performer like uh, Billy Crystal and Gary Marshall for some reason were two that I remember where they we'd spend an hour interviewing them and it, you know, it took a lot of work and and it wasn't really it wasn't really my thing and I did a talk show pilot for Comedy Central and I and I hosted a couple of times on when they were looking to replace Greg Kinnear on later but mm-hmm. I don't know that I ever really you know, got the hang of interviewing. So ultimately what happened, even on Air America, I think it started there, was that when I'd get somebody on, you know, I was dealing with a lot of politicians and people with agendas, and you were dealing with, as you know, in radio, four or five minute shots, and they and they had to get out what they wanted to get out, and you had to sort of service that, or if you were going to call them on something, you never knew what was going to happen, because, you know, politicians are pretty good at that. But for some reason, anytime I interviewed anybody, I just wanted to get them off of their script a little bit just to hear their vulnerability for a second. I remember there was a time where the guy's name, I think his name was Peter Berger. He was like the, the guy who wrote on Al-Qaeda. You know, he was the go-to guy for Al-Qaeda. And, uh, and we had him on frequently. And I would just try my hardest to make him laugh during him telling me about Al-Qaeda because I just wanted him to lighten up a little bit. And one time he laughed and it was this weird, squealy, kind of very kind of off-putting laugh. But I was so thrilled that it happened. It was more exciting than any uh, insight into Al-Qaeda that I was receiving from him. So it might have started there. It was really about engaging, connecting, having an emotional conversation with somebody. That it, it, I don't think of myself as an interviewer. Right, but also maybe it's that the early iterations of interviews that you were asked to do either for that pilot or the Greg Kinnear show, those aren't and they're interviews and that you you ask a question, they give an answer, but those are almost like aided performances, right? You're just being the straight man for the thing that they want to say. You're trying to get at, as you said, something deeper in these. So I think it's, in fact, you could argue it's more of an interview than, you know, your the, the, the previous things you engaged in. Yeah, because, well, I, you know, I that's true. I don't re- recall it that way. I, you know, my memory gets a little is not been is not great uh, about things that I'm involved in. I think because I have a, a sort of PTSD about my entire past. Uh, I don't know how I got through a lot of it. I, you know, at, at the level of anxiety that I operate at. But I've been on both sides of that. I know what it's like to be the guest on a produced segment. You know, I've done you know dozens of. You know, I've been on Conan O'Brien like fifty times. I've been on several other talk shows. I know what that is like. And I guess that I was helped out, you know, certainly at Sedition at uh, Morning America, we had producers. But I think you're right. The more I, I, I think about interviewing, because there have been times, man, where I've been in conversation with somebody and I wish I had interview questions. <laughs> I have really, I really wish I did uh, because sometimes people do, they don't know how to engage in a conversation like that or they're not anticipating that. And they're looking at me with that face of like, all right, next question. And I'm like, I, I don't really have that. It's not the way I do this. So this is going to be awkward until we can figure out a way to talk. It seems to me as a listener that the uh, style is not so influenced by journalism as it is by therapy. And I don't, I've never been to therapy, but I have been to journalism. It definitely doesn't come from journalism because I really don't know. I have no training as a journalist. I have no, like, you know, the, what, the, the, sometimes I know the five W's, you know, who, what, when, where, why. Is that it? Who, what, when, where, why, right? Yeah, and so, then they throw a how in there just to fuck with you. Oh, and a how. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, but I, I don't come from that place. It, you know, the, the, the time I learned how to be a journalist, really, if I am one at all, was, was because of a mistake I made on the show. So, 
And therapy, I have a hard time with. I have a hard time with that framing, but I get it. You know, a lot of people for years, even stand-up comedy to some people, is like, well, it's just therapy for some of these guys. I don't know if I really buy that because when I was a kid and I used to wander around, I used to, maybe it was because my father was emotionally absent or whatever, but I used to love talking to people that seemed to have a life, people that seemed to have character that seemed to have you know some secret wisdom i would spend my you know my teenage years i'd i'd make rounds to the record store to the guitar store to the bookstore and i talked to the people that ran those places and i'd make a day of it and that that lasted all the way up until you know when i I lived in new york as a comic i had a lot of time on my hands and and also when i was a kid my grandfather owned a hardware store in pompton lakes or uh, haskell new jersey and there was all these old guys that used to hang around and i just used to love hearing them and, and talking to them so I think what I'm doing comes more from that. You know, certainly, you know, I needed help in the beginning of the podcast. I needed emotional help. I was not in a good place. But I do enjoy people that have lives, you know, talking about their life. I get very engaged with it. And I'd sort of forgotten about that. And when I started the podcast over the years now, you know, it's really come back to me. There's a therapy element to it in in how you're framing it, only in that it's an emotionally engaged conversation, which I think people are capable of having. We're supposed to be having them. There's something nourishing about it. There was, you know, as a guy, you know, before the internet who who had a lot of free time on his hands. I mean, you know, like I'd spend the day wandering around with Louis or Todd Barry or just wandering around New York wondering what the hell was going on, having coffee and talking. Those are great times that just don't seem to exist anymore. How much of uh, conversations get left on the cutting room floor and why would that happen? We don't cut really much. We'll cut if somebody wants us to cut something. There's been, you know, some, you know, conversations over elements where I've had a conversation with somebody and they've wanted something cut and you know, I'm not out to sandbag anybody, so um we do it and it's usually you know when they say something bad about somebody else is oddly the reason why a lot of stuff is cut if it hasn't happened that much but if somebody says something about somebody and they rethink it they're like does that have to be in there no it doesn't and and why and also andy dick needed something cut because we weren't sure if there was a statute of limitations on a felony uh so but (laughs) But a lot of times there's there's just little there's there sometimes we'll streamline things a little bit and we'll tighten things up. You know, sometimes if some if a conversation just goes nowhere or a tangent goes nowhere and it doesn't come back around, we'll just kind of, you know, ease it out. Sometimes, you know, we we structure, you know, conversations so they if there's a theme to be found, we'll try to sort of amplify that. And if there's an arc in there. Uh, we, we just try to, you know, find that and amplify that. But that's, you know, that's Brendan McDonald, my producer's world. You said that the, your foray into journalism was because of a mistake you made, if I heard that right? Yeah. What, what well, was it? It was not a mistake. It was just, a, it was not, I didn't follow through. So what, what was it? What was that incident? Well, well, the Carl, the Carlos Mencia episodes, like I'm a little detached, uh, you know, a little disconnected mm-hmm. pop culture wise. I can't seem to keep up. You know, I got, got a lot of my mind. So when I interviewed Carlos Mencia, I only really knew that everybody hated him. Yeah. He was the most hated guy in comedy. And I knew that him and I had been doing it around the same amount of time. There's a poster here in my garage of for us taping our, our HBO half hours at the Fillmore in 1995. What I wanted to, to talk to him about was how did it feel to be so alienated, so hated, so, you know, how does that... I, I wanted to talk to him about that. It was, I, I was entering, you know, empathetically 
to the conversation because I had no idea of the scope of the accusations of uh, joke stealing. So I do this interview and he just sort of steamrolled me and, and used it as a as a platform to to reinvent himself. And I really couldn't get around it because I didn't have enough uh, 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 at my fingertips to to really call him on. So I, I, I right, I, you weren't like you weren't like Tim Russert on Meet the Press. Actually, this was said then. I understand. Right, you hadn't done reams of research on it. I hadn't done any. I just I just wanted to talk to the guy. And, <laughs> By and, reams we mean any, yeah. And and you know I, I just wanted to talk to him like I usually do. And he had an agenda, and I and I told people I was going to do that interview. So I had this hour of of garbage. Of him, you know, telling me what a great guy he was, and 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 how, uh, and it was troubling, you know. So I I talked to my friend Al Madrigal, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but people know I got it, and I can't release it like this. Not, and he goes, Well, you got to go back, you got to go talk to a couple guys that you know know him, and you got to talk to him again with a more sort of precise agenda. So I was in this weird position where I had to call Carlos, and I'm like, Look, you know, we didn't really address what we needed to address, and you know, you need to come back in. And uh, and that was part two. You know, I had Willie Barsena, a guy who started with Carlos. I had Steve Trevino, a guy that toured with Carlos. And, and I, I called Carlos and I said, we got to do more. And he's like, all right, I just landed at LAX. I'll come over now. And I was nervous because I really had to confront a guy, you know, in a real way. And the results were pretty mind-blowing. I mean, he, he, yeah. he didn't ad- admit to stealing, but he certainly came unhinged. <laughs> That was literally the first episode I ever heard, and I think it was compared to like a great edition of 60 Minutes, and Ira Glass praised it, and yeah, that got me on board, and that was great. One question that always occurs to me is this. Are you disappointed when a guest doesn't have demons? No. I, I, I don't... like the, the show got this reputation as this place where you go to work stuff out, or you gotta cry, <laughs> or you gotta... I mean, look, I'm not gonna go there unless we can go there. You know, I've had a lot of different kinds of conversation, and I've really learned to... You know, if someone's a good raconteur, you know, I, I don't need demons necessarily. Uh, and, and a lot of the guys that, that I've talked to, and a lot of the women I've talked to, they don't necessarily have demons, and it doesn't become about that. Uh, it really, what I'm I'm looking for is is some sort of authentic connection and some sort of moment where you know where you really you know they're, they're, we're engaged in in an emotional conversation and we're both present and uh, and and there's a, a you, you you kind of feel the the genuineness of somebody and and that's very emotional for me. So no, I mean, look, if someone doesn't have demons, it, it, I'm always baffled by it, but it it's very makes it makes me very hopeful. And a technique, but I don't think it's a technique, I think it's honest, is you clearly empathize with your guests and you try to find that connection. Good interviewers do, not at all afraid to put yourself into it. And I'm thinking of, say, the Dr. Drew one, I just heard that recently, could be anyone, where it's, you know, parallel situations. Here was uh, here was my journey, here's what I had to deal with. You know, we both have, like, father issues, let's connect on that. And I definitely hear that with the comedians. Um, was that... From the get-go, was that hard for you to access? Was that something that you realized as you went on it worked? Or is that more who you are? And if there was no podcast, that's exactly the kind of conversations you'd be having with people anyway. I don't know that the conversations, if I didn't have the podcast, would would unfold like that. I I don't know what happens in here, man. But I'm very open in, in an emotional way, more so than I am in any other part of my life. And even when someone tells a story that that's not even that, you know, 
you know, powerful necessarily in terms of its content. If it, there's an emotional component to it that these people are moved by, I feel myself, you know, choking up. And, and yeah. I feel that a lot. I'm so happy when it happens. If that happens during an interview, I'm very excited. If I feel tears welling up, I'm like, okay, this something's happening here. Now, with your Louis C.K. interview, which was both an interview and a history and a personal history and almost a tearful apology, did you have an agenda for that different from what you usually have for interviews, even with interviews with guys that you've known well throughout your career? Well, my agenda, as I recall, I mean, that was you know released in October, October 4th, uh, 2010. It was two episodes. And I, I think we were, we were into the show. Uh, it was a little, a little over a year. And uh, I'd always wanted to talk to Louie because uh, I have my relationship with Louie is was sort of strangely deep for me, you know, because it wasn't like we were best friends or inseparable. But, you know, he was very important to me in my life coming up as a comic and we understood each other. And and I felt like I was, you know, important to him and that we, you know, there were some moments. What what drove me to talking to him, aside from, you know, he's the biggest star in comedy and, and we do have this history, but we also have this trouble between us. The way I framed that conversation in my mind, there was a couple of moments that I talk about in that conversation that I was present for in Louis's life. Then I don't think he really remembered that I was there. And and so I was sort of hanging a bit on that. There were moments in Louis's life that because Louis always lived his life in a very challenging way, he would challenge himself by overspending, by doing crazy things to see if he could sort of get out of it or if it would push him along, you know, whether it's, you know, buying a trumpet that he can't afford or, uh, you know, just you know running out of money. He's a very interesting guy how he drives himself. But there was a few points in his life that I remember very clearly that I think were pivotal. And that's what I was going in with. And, and all the emotional stuff that sort of happened, all the talking about our history, that all happened very organically. I really didn't know what was going to happen with Louie. And I felt like when I finally got him to do it, and I tried to get him to do it for like a year or so, I think he really thought that, you know, he's like, all right, all right, I'm going to, I'll do this for Marin. I don't know what this thing is, but, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna help him out. Like I, I don't think he had any idea what would happen with that conversation. Nor did I. I really think he was like, "Come over to my house and we'll we'll do this thing that you're doing." <laughs> so you know, but really, what I wanted to talk about was the day that he found that video of Putney Swope, the Robert Downey Senior film in that uh, video store because he couldn't he couldn't rent. He bought it in a bargain bin. Like I, I was with him that day, and I think that day changed the entire way his brain worked. And and that was what I was sort of hanging on, you know. And the rest of it sort of fell into place the way it did. And so your motivation was actually talk about his career as well as him as a person, and it got very personal afterwards. Did you think of it more like, wow, I got to a place with my friend? Or did you think of it more like, I just did a great interview? No, not, I don't think of it as a great interview. Him and I have never talked like that. you got to realize that. You know, comics, like, a lot of these guys, like David Tell, like, most of the... I've known those guys for half my life. And I've never talked to them for more than 10 or 15 minutes. And also, you got to realize that in casual conversation... Louis likes to talk. He likes to talk about Louis. The fact that him and I were able to really have a conversation around our relationship and around my jealousy and around how he felt 
abandoned because of my insecurity and that kind of stuff. You know, dudes don't talk like that really. And, and, you know, and it was a hard conversation to have and it helped me a lot as a person. So I never really thought of it as an interview. I, I mean, it was very important to me that him and I try to repair our friendship and figure out, you know, how to do that. It ended on a high note. Okay, we're going to really try. So it's been about four years. How's that gone? Good. I was in New York. I went over to his house. He showed me his stereo equipment and his home theater. And uh, we had some uh, had some coffee. It's good. We're in touch, you know, just enough. You know, if I'm in New York, he invites me to stay at his house if I need to. And, and we hang out if he has time. He's a busy guy. And I'm busy now, too. Sure. But we do make time to spend a couple hours together uh, when we can. It definitely worked. And I've really got my own sense of self in check. And, you know, even <laughs> you know, even though he's at a very different level than I am, I'm able to be uh, happy for him and uh, to be uh, you know, sort of entertained by him as a friend, you, you know, because he's a you know, he's a special guy and he's not. I don't know how many really close relationships he's, he has. But the thing about him and I was that. You know, I'm a pretty panicky, crazy guy that's gone through some pretty difficult times where it didn't look like I was really going to get out of him. And he's always been the type of guy that was very able to, you know, make me laugh and also make me see what is going on in a very simple, concise way that helped me through it with very little effort on his part. And I think I've always been a pretty good sounding board, you know, for him when he's needed a, a specific type of sounding board. So, so that's that's kind of back in check. He's got a lot more responsibilities than I do. He's got children and houses and different types of vehicles that operate on land and yeah. ocean. So yes, <laughs> or, or get grounded, as I heard yeah. on the Seinfeld show, another show about comedians talking to comedians. Do you think the reaction to that, which was a loved episode, could be based on a lot of things? Two funny guys talking, two funny guys talking at length, two funny guys talking, getting in touch with their emotions. But there must have been part of it that was like, this is the ultimate nonfiction male bonding thing that I've ever seen or heard. Look, man, if that's what you got, I'm happy you got that. You know, I'm I'm a, a very in the present person. I don't think I've listened to that episode since I've had the conversation with Louie in person. Um, a lot of people got a lot out of it. I know I got a lot out of it. I felt that he got a lot out of it. It, it was one of the first episodes where the one thing I, you know, maybe I learned technically was that, you, you know, when someone's having an emotional moment to let them have it. And if I'm having one to let myself have it and don't feel like you have to. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing about two funny guys talking is that, you know, we didn't step on each other's emotions. And that's sort of the purpose that comedy serves. So whatever anyone got out of it and, and however it, it helped them or made them feel or entertained them or gave them insight into him or me or, or, or into relationships, I'm, I'm thrilled that they got whatever they got out of it. Mark Marin is the host of WTF. You might know it as the podcast with the greatest episode ever, but it contains multitudes. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's great talking to you. With the holidays almost here, almost here, almost here. Today is Bill of Rights Day. Yesterday was National Bolyabay's Day. 
Lemon Cupcake Day is also today, National Maple Syrup Day, American National Syrup Day, tomorrow the 18th, National Roast Suckling Pig Day, and we totally missed National Noodle Ring Day. I don't know what it is either. It apparently involves a bunt cake, but what it doesn't involve is going to the post office and trying to mail said noodle rings because that would just be too hard. Traffic, parking, all the other people. Use Stamps.com instead, noodle ringers. Stamps.com is the best way to get your mailing and shipping done right from your desk. You just need a computer. You print real U.S. postage with your own printer. So try Stamps.com today, right now. If you use the promo code National Noodle, what? Okay, the promo code, the gist, you get a special offer. You get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale. It includes $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. Noodle ring not included. And now the spiel, a tortured response. Dick Cheney had an extraordinary interview on Meet the Press yesterday. You know, because we are in the age of gaffe, maybe we have lost the ability to recognize when an astounding media moment happens if it doesn't include a gaffe. And while Sarah Palin's inability to tell Katie Couric a single Supreme Court decision or name a newspaper, maybe that's more notorious than what we saw in Meet the Press That didn't require any real context. What Dick Cheney did wasn't a misstatement. It wasn't a mistake. He didn't go home and say, I wish I had phrased it differently. But it was seriously one of the most simultaneously compelling and repelling interviews I have ever seen. It was at many points incredible, and I mean literally incredible. It worked. It absolutely did work. It was defiant, as in when the former vice president was asked to define torture. Well, torture to me, uh, Chuck is uh, an American citizen um, on his cell phone making a last call to his four young daughters shortly before he burns to death in the upper levels of the Trade Center in New York City on 9-11. Actually, that's more of an example than a definition. But, you know, we sometimes on this show play talk show karaoke. It's where I give the answer I wish a guest had given on a talk show. But here I'm going to play reverse talk show karaoke. I'm going to do what I wish the host had done if, you know... I didn't mind coming across as a disrespectful but largely accurate punk. Okay, so we heard Dick Cheney define torture as what happened to the U.S. on 9-11. Didn't detonate that bit of ordinance just once. And I've told you what meets the definition of torture. It's what 19 guys armed with airline tickets and and, uh, box cutters did to 3,000 Americans on 9-11. So, Mr. Cheney, torture is only what was done to Americans on 9-11. The rack, the Iron Maiden pulling one's fingernails out. I guess it didn't happen on 9-11, so it can't be torture. I guess waterboarding can't be torture because the hijackers didn't do it to us, to which Dick Cheney would say. Uh, My reaction is the same as Leo Thorsness, who was on the air this week, um, captured pilot, shot down over Vietnam, held uh, in captivity for many years, subjected to torture. This week said waterboarding is not torture. But wait. He wasn't killed on 9-11, and if your definition of torture is what was done on 9-11, then you can't say he was tortured. And then Chuck Todd actually did point this out. When you say waterboarding uh, is not torture, then why did we prosecute Japanese soldiers? Uh, For for a lot of stuff, not for waterboarding. They did an awful lot of other stuff to draw some kind of moral equivalent between waterboarding, judged by our Justice Department not to be torture, and what the Japanese did with the Bataan Death March and the slaughter of thousands of Americans uh, with the rape of Nanking and all of the other crimes they committed. That, that's an outrage. It's, it's a really cheap shot. 
such a cheap shot. Only Dick Cheney is wrong. For a lot of stuff, not for waterboarding. Yes, for waterboarding. U.S. Military Commission, Yokohama, 1947, U.S. versus Yukio Asano. Charge that the accused did violate the laws and customs of war, brutally mistreat and torture Morris O. Killaw, an American prisoner of war, by beating and kicking him and fastening him on a stretcher and pouring water up his nostrils. Specification 2. That the accused, Yukio Asano, did willfully and unlawfully, brutally mistreat and torture Thomas Armitage, William O'Cash, Monroe Dave Woodall by beating and kicking them by forcing water into their mouth and noses. Specification 5, the accused, Yukio Asano, beat him, fastened him head downward on a stretcher and forced water into his nose. That, by the way, resulted in conviction, 15 years hard labor. Others with Yukio Asano got worse punishments. Wasn't for the Bataan Death March. Wasn't for the rape of Nanking. It was for waterboarding. Now, one critique of the Senate's report by Cheney and by others is that it's partisan. It's a cheap shot piece of political business that was not uh, bipartisan, nor was it uh, involved any discussion with the people involved in the program. Lots of Republicans calling it partisan. That's why they won't sign on to it. Well, guess what? If they did sign on to it, then it wouldn't be partisan. It's like saying, I'm against anything that's not unanimous, even if I'm the only one against it. I don't know. It's like being against opposition or something. I mean, one party unilaterally decrying partisanship is like a congressional Zen cone or something. Anyway, if I were a congressional Democrat, I would say... So you want to say that this is now a partisan issue? You want to delineate that there is one party against the practice of anally raping someone with instruments and forcing a puree of hummus and raisins into their colon? And there's this other party that supports anally raping someone and forcing a puree of raisins and hummus in their colon? And you guys want to be the party that's for that? That is your position? All right, go ahead. Just don't serve dip at your meeting. So at one point, I expected Dick Cheney to say, and he wouldn't really say it like I'm about to say it. I'm kind of doing John Stewart's version of Dick Cheney, or it's like Edward G. Robinson, the guy from Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. That's what it's going to sound like. But it would be cool if he had said, Chuck, Chuck, you're asking the wrong questions. What you should ask, back the tape up, ask it this way. Here we go. What you should ask is, how lucky was the United States to have, at the very moment of attack, how lucky was the United States to have as vice president the cruelest bastard in the country? I mean, what are the odds that the most heartless SOB in a country of 300 million people would be whispering it to the presidency? Or There's a question, Chuck. To Dick Cheney, anal feeding, waterboarding, allowing a prisoner to freeze to death are okay because it wasn't done to us. Cheney scoffs at international treaties. He believes in strength. Well, I believe in strength, too. I think strength is to face one's failings, to acknowledge them, to tell the world it's not what you stand for. Maybe Cheney's denial of wrongdoing and failure to acknowledge any excesses was a defiant rhetorical game somehow. I'd do it again in a minute. I don't think so. But his argument, even if he did evade some definitions or misstate some facts, his argument is clear. It's unambiguous. You don't usually get such forceful declarations of a mission statement. It's useful. John McCain's number one criticism of torture is a very simple construction. It's about who we are. Dick Cheney's rebuttal on Meet the Press was crystal clear. Listen to it. The defenders of the CIA's program, the critics of the report, and former Vice President Dick Cheney himself, they're all telling you unambiguously who they are. I'd do it again in a minute. (laughs) 
And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is much better than other podcast producers. Managing producer of Slate Podcast Joel Meyer is a fan of Grape Ape, Violet Beauregard, and other purple people. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has a weakness for paraffin wax, asphalt, lubricants, and other petroleum products. You can subscribe on iTunes. Give us a listen on Stitcher. In iTunes, you might find out that we are the third best podcast of 2014. Also, it's a good way to check out other people's podcasts and give everyone reviews, but us too. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. Yo is a thing that will tell you when our podcast is ready. Download it and sign up for podcasts. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at thegist.com. Other People's Podcast Week continues tomorrow. Here now, the stylings of drummer Darius Brozozowski. You might know him from the Polish heavy metal bands Vader, Black River, Jelinek, Sunwill, Armageddon, Arista, Arath, Faust, Neolithic, Cryonics, Autumn, Death, Imperial Age, Crazen, Crystal Abyss, Nerve, Insidious Disease, and Pyrea. Or maybe you enjoy the drumming of Pitor Kozuradski of Riverside Hate, Thunderbolt, Katuix, Swatsiska, Gotika, Dark Prophecies, and Domain. There are too many to list, but I could direct you to several other Polish percussionists. Thanks for listening.